All right. So, they already know. Threes through fives in the back, and then K through fifth up front, please. How are we doing this morning? We good? Freedom's good. Freedom's always good. Uh, maybe not always, but most of the time when I see her, she's good. So how could you not be good? Your name's Freedom, you know? And it is beautiful outside. I love, not, I love walking outside and not feeling like I'm in a hairdryer. Amen. Can I get an amen? Yep. All right. So I hope you're all doing well. Honestly, I'm excited to be here. Uh, I will let you know, most of you know this, but some of you may not, I have a tendency to talk fast and a lot. So if you had plans before noon, you probably want to cancel those, all right? But seriously, you should cancel those because, now nah, you shouldn't cancel them, but right after service, this is like a good segue right here, right after service, in this room right over here, we're going to be packing some meal kits for the teachers and staff over here at Eisenhower Elementary School. We've been trying to figure out a way to partner with them for years. There was kind of a season there where we were able to with, you know, the couple years that we don't want to talk about. Uh, that kind of came to an abrupt end, uh, but we're kind of rekindling that relationship, and this is an easy way that we can do that. I really don't expect that to take too long. Uh, the biggest thing that we're going to do is pack these meal kits and then write some thank you notes or some just words of encouragement. That'll probably be the part that takes the longest. So if you have 10, 15 minutes after service, man, I'd love to see you in there. Uh, it, like I said, it shouldn't take too long. Most of it's already set up. But I will tell you the original intent was not for me to be up here today. Uh, but when the opportunity arose, of course, I jumped on it. The last time I was up here, I was sharing from a book uh, series, a book that most of us probably hadn't heard of, Habakkuk out of the Old Testament. And although that series had its challenges, one-off one sermons like this have their challenges as well. In this case, the first challenge was actually uh, myself. I'm not going to lie, I wasn't super thrilled about the topic of today's uh, sermon. And, it's, and I wasn't not thrilled about it because I don't think it's important. I think it's absolutely important. But I feel like we talk about it a lot uh, but as usual, the spirit as well as the text have a, te have a way of just working on you. And, uh, and this text began to work on me, and I realized if the Bible talks about something so much, then it has to be important. And so if it's that important, then am I the problem or is the topic the problem? I'm the problem, right? The Bible talks about love a lot, like more than teenagers at junior high camp or at a summer conference, like more than engaged couples at Bible college. It just doesn't talk about it uh, in general either. It is very specific about its implications and its eternal significance. The second challenge of preparing a sermon like this is the fact that next week, Mike is preaching from a passage that is very similar to this one. And so if I was going to preach on this, I'm going to have to leave a little bit of meat on the bone for him, Right? which I've already talked to him about it a lot, and so, you know, hopefully, hopefully he'll have something to actually say next week. If you know Mike, I'm sure he will. Uh, but I entitled this sermon, Biblical Love, A Working Definition. By this title, I'm essentially laying my cards on the table as to what my goal is for today. And I hope when you leave here, you have a working definition of the word love in a biblical sense, in, in what we're, we're talking about here today. 
A working definition is a little bit of a play on words, right? It's not just a definition that you know, but my hope is that you, this would be something that would work in your life and that would play out in your life each and every day as you follow Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to John, 1 John chapter 4. Hey, actually, fun story. The first time I ever stepped foot in a Sunday school class when I was like 17 years old, they asked me to open up to 1 John 1, and I opened up to John 1. So it's, it was a whole thing. But 1 John chapter 4, if you don't have your Bible, if, if you don't own a Bible, like this is legitimate, if you don't own a Bible, we have some at the Welcome Center in the back, and they're actually in the same version that I'll be reading out of today. If you don't own a Bible, please take one of those. Uh, we truly believe that the Bible is a transformative, the transformative word of God, the word that, the, the word that can literally change, have, have change in our lives, can cause us to, to grow in our relationships with him. And if you don't have one, man, we'd love for you to have one. If you have your devices, open those up as well. Uh, I will be preaching out of the English Standard Version. I've already said that. Uh, And 1 John 4 will be our primary passage, but of course I will read a lot of other passages as well. So 1 John 4, 7 through 12 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know God Who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son in the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, it's kind of a fun word we'll talk about in a second, for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. That word propitiation, I just got to make sure that I, I define that for you. The propitiation is the, is the act of Jesus taking the wrath of God upon himself instead of us taking that wrath upon ourselves. We deserve that wrath, but instead of us absorbing that wrath, Jesus jumped in front of the bus and took that wrath upon himself. So the first thing that I do when I come to a passage is I ask lots of questions. I ask questions like, what does this word mean or what was going on at the time? And this usually gives me a good framework for what I'm going to be paying attention to as I study but as I prepared this sermon, I figured that the best way to answer the question, what is biblical love, is in question and answer form. And so the first question that I think most of us will ask is, is how is it defined? But I think there's a more important question that has to be answered first, and that is this. Why is love so important? Why is love so important? The answer is this. Love is an explicit part of God's nature. Now, for the sake of clarity, I think most of you know this, but when I say explicit, I'm not talking about the album cover that tells your your parents, you know, your kids shouldn't be listening to this. But what I mean is, is that this is a fact about God that is clearly stated, that is clearly stated. There are many things about God that are implicit, meaning we can pull those out of the text, but this is explicit. There is no question about that, that love is a part of God's nature. If you truly want to know God or claim to know God, you must understand what biblical love is. We see this in verses seven and eight. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then to turn that around, anyone who does not love does, know, does not know God, because God is love. God is love. John makes a total of three God is statements in his writings. One of them is found in the book of John, and the other two are found in this epistle. In, God 4, in John 4.24, it says this, God is spirit. In 1 John 1.5, God is light. And here, in 1 John 4, it says God is love. We have example after example of God faithfully loving his creation throughout the entirety of the Bible. Men, do you not think that God was loving when he saw how much of a mess you would be and in turn created woman? Yet, shake your head yes, right? Yes, we, we would have been a mess if it wasn't for woman. I don't think women reciprocate that same sentiment, right? I think some of them think their life would be a lot easier without us, right? <laughs> After Adam and Eve rebelled against God, what is one of the first things that he did before expelling them from the garden? Besides disciplining them, which this is an act of love as well. He slayed an animal and made garments for them. He established a nation that he washed over. He gave them a system for atoning for sins, and he even dwelt among them. He helped them escape Egypt. He disciplined them as a father does his own child. And ultimately, we see this playing out in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We see this in the establishment of the church and what that has done to the world that we live in today. So my goal for today is to define biblical love. And if God is love, how could one possibly begin to define it without him? One author wrote it this way, there can be no explanation or definition of true love which does not first start from God. So why is love so important? Because it is explicit to who God is. The two are inseparable. You cannot truly begin to define love without God, without the God which it has, without, without God, which is why the world is so confused by it. And so that brings us to our next question. What is love? Not really. It's how is love defined? If I were to ask you this question, what do you love? How would you answer it? I bet if I had every person write down their answer, the answers would be all over the map. Some might not even actually begin to write things down. One pastor I was listening to went around and he actually asked every person he had a conversation with that week, what do you love? Almost all of them asked the question right back, well, what do you mean? He went on to call love in the English language a junk drawer word which we use to describe literally everything. I love my wife. I also love tacos. I love the chiefs, but I also love God. And so on and so forth. Do you see how this word could be so confusing to the world that we live in today? But this, this word is also confusing because in some areas of our culture, love is God. Love is held in the highest esteem and to question one's feelings of love would be, a question, would be to question their very existence. And I haven't even gotten started on the self-love movement, which I think can stem from a very good place, but what it can morph into 
is something that lifts you up as God as opposed to the creator of the universe. And so because of this, I think love can really easily be categorized in two ways. The love of satisfaction and the love of sacrifice. I actually took this from a a minister named John Piper. And John Piper actually called it the love of complacency and the love of benevolence. But those aren't two words we're super familiar with, so I adjusted them accordingly. The love of satisfaction is inwardly focused. It is describing things that we find enjoyment in. Most of the time when we use the word love, this is probably the category that we are talking about. The Bible actually has no issue with the love of satisfaction. None. In fact, in the Ten Commandments, it literally says, you shall not cover your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servants, or his female servants, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That's in the book of Exodus. The essence of this is to appreciate the good gifts that God has given to you to find satisfaction in them. And so constantly wanting and yearning and looking what everybody else has is not what he wants for you. He wants you to be satisfied in what he has given you. The essence of this is to, again, appreciate the good gifts that God has given to you and to find satisfaction in them. The love of sacrifice, though, is outwardly focused. Part of the reason that it's confusing in our, in our world is because the word love, we have one word for it. Really, we have one word for it. In the Greek language, they had four. The first one was eros, a passionate love or romantic love. We actually don't see this word one time in the New Testament. And it's because it's actually where we, got, we get our, our English word erotic from. And it was so corrupt at the time that they wouldn't even use it in the Bible because it would just mean so many different things. The second one is philea. If, you, if that word sounds familiar, New Philadelphia, the city of brother, brotherly love, that's the stem of this. It is a love between very close friends. We see this played out in the Old Testament between, between David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 18. Another word we don't see in the Bible by itself, but we see it compounded with another word is the word storge. Storge is often referred to as familial love or the love between parents and children. We actually see this word only one time in the New Testament, and it's in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. But it is compounded with philea. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. And the word we find in our passage today is this. We actually find it in both a noun form and a verb form. And its definition is going to be the, the word that we use, or I say its definition is going to be how we define the word or, the, or how we define biblical love or the love of sacrifice. And it is the word agape. The love of, sa- the love of sacrifice. A divine love, this is the answer, a divine love characterized by sacrifice and the pursuit of another person's good. This love is expressed in its fullest extent in the person of Jesus Christ. In our passage today, it says this, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So the character, the nature, the essence of God, God is love, was made manifest in us through his son Jesus, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved, but that God had loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. 
It's also communicated in John 3, 16 and 17, as well as Romans 5. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When the Bible talks about enemies of God, when it talks about the unrighteous, when it talks about sinners, it's talking about you and it's talking about me. We can see that from these verses that it is God's greatest desire that we join in him in eternal heaven. He has made, way a poss- made this way possible by paying the price for our sins. He loves us because he chose to act of his will. And so love is directly This love, a love that is characterized by sacrifice and the pursuit of another person's good is characterized in the person and made manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so what does this love have to do with you and me? Honestly, this should be obvious by now. The answer is that love should be explicit in us too. Or it should have everything to do with you and me. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In that next verse, it says, if you don't love, you don't know God. If you don't express this type of biblical love, a love that is built on sacrifice and the pursuit of another person's good, you don't know God. It is a benchmark for what it looks like to follow and serve Jesus. John could not understand how someone could experience the divine love, agape love, and remain unmoved to love one another. And other writers believe this as well. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says this, for the love of Christ controls us. Another way that this is put is compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. A person cannot come into a loving relationship with God without being transformed. Sorry, a person cannot come into a relationship with a loving God without being transformed into a loving person. I do want to make sure I make this clear. This is not prescriptive, it is descriptive, meaning you don't become a loving person and then come into a relationship with God. You become a loving person because of your relationship with God. That is the whole point of the gospel, is that you can't clean yourself up. You can't do enough to earn favor with God, to become this loving person that he's talking about. You can't do that on your own. You need Jesus. It's not the other way around. Ephesians 2 says this, And you were dead, dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following to the course of this world, the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. People that are dead don't just decide to not be dead. Right? You can't just, you're dead, no, I'm not going to be dead anymore. It doesn't work that way. But God being rich in mercy because uh, because of the great love, that love word again, in which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, even when we were enemies of God, even when we could be characterized as the ungodly, made us, what, I lost my place because I looked up at you guys. With which of us, even though we were dead in trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. But we were created as his workmanship for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's the question. Are you changed? Have you been transformed? Do you know God? Do you know love? You know, honestly, this kind of seems like it's really hard to wrap our minds around. And I think that it is. Because everything in us, Romans 7, right? I do the things that I don't want to do even though I know I shouldn't do them, but yet I do them anyways, right? Like Paul is just, his head is twisted by the fact that we know what we ought to do, but yet we don't do it, right? Love is a hard thing to grow and mature in. And so how many of you yelled at your kids this morning? Like honestly, I yelled at my kids. I'll raise my hand. I yelled at my kids this morning. Because they were acting foolish, right? They were acting foolish. Listen, quit making your sister scream her head off in the car. Just leave her alone, right? Just leave her alone. I love my boys, but man, sometimes, you know? Love is hard. It is hard. It's hard to love like this. And so I want to make sure it's clear. Some of us, like if if you're one of those people that have expressed this type of love in your life, and some days it seems harder than others, Man, keep moving forward, right? Keep loving Jesus, right? You're, you're, you're doing the right thing. But what is scary to me is that I think there are some parts about this, there are some ways in which people have not experienced this that honestly terrify me a little bit. And I think there's actually two, there's two ways that this plays out. The, both of them are equally scary, or actually, I shouldn't say equally scary. One's more scary than the other one, the one's more of a problem. The first one is this, is that there are people that attend church every Sunday. They go, to, they go to Sunday school. They might even be involved in a small group. But they have never expressed in their life this type of love. They've never thought about sacrificing for other people. They have never thought about the fact that they were enemies of God once and now they are saved because of God's great mercy. And what worries me about that type of situation when I read passages like this is, do they actually know God? Do they actually know God? If you've never expressed this type of love, it's, it's going to be really hard to argue with this. This is pretty clear. When we have the Holy Spirit indwelling within us, it should change us in a way. It should move us to love those around us in a way that is characterized by sacrifice in the pursuit of their good. Jesus says when he, in, in John 14, 17 that the Holy Spirit would live with you and will be in you. If you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that, same, that same divine love that is in God's nature should be manifested in you. And if you do not express biblical love, 1 John makes it very clear that you do not know God And you need to repent and believe. You need to turn from that. You need to lay your life down. And you need to lift up Jesus. 
The second one is this, and I think it's one that is probably more common, although I don't know. I don't know. I'm not the judge and jury, so. Hebrews 5, 11, 14 says this, about this we have much to say and it is hard to, to explain since you have become dull in hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles and oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature and for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to practice to distinguish good and evil. So you might have expressed a very basic understanding of what this looks like. You might have expressed a very basic desire to sacrifice and pursue the good of others. But you're having a hard time growing in that. You need to pick up your Bible and you need to read it. If you want to know God, first John chapter 1 talks about the word was with God, right? This is talking about the triune nature of God. We believe that the Bible is the expressed word of God revealed to us. If you want to know what love looks like and how that should be playing out in your life, read the Bible. Just read it. Because here's the thing. More often than not, we find every other excuse that we can not to read it instead of to get into it. I'll be honest with you. I'm right here. Sometimes, man, it's like, you're like, I just, I just forgot, or I got busy doing other things. Well, if it's this important to you, if you follow God, then it should not be the thing that is in the back of your mind. It should be the thing that is at the front of your mind. Another way that you can learn what it looks like to love other people in this way, Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is a habit for some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Hang out with other mature believers, people that read their Bible, watch what they do, talk to them, ask them questions. And you know what? Sometimes you might not agree on what the Bible says and how it should be practiced. That's okay, right? There's nuance in the Bible. Understanding it is difficult sometimes. But we must love one another by engaging in mature, real relationships. Do you have people that actually know you, that you go to when you have these types of questions or when you're struggling with something? Or is it something that you do on your own? We have a lot of military families here. I love that our military families are here. I hope that this isn't just a place for you to pass through until you get to the next place. We want you to be able to come here and grow and learn and understand what it means to follow Jesus. There are people that would love to engage you in those types of conversations. The Bible, if, if you need one, we have one for you. If you have a phone, bust that out, download an app. There's some great reading plans on there. You can learn what it looks like to love and to know God. There are too many believers that attend church every Sunday that have zero clue what it looks like to be in, in, a, in a mature relationship with other believers, as well as they are illiterate on what the Bible actually says about what it means to follow God. That is not okay. We have to be pursue, pushing each other on to love and good deeds. Now, if you're new here and you're like, I don't know what the Bible says, that's fine, you know, right? Like, that's okay. Come alongside us. Come to some of our classes. Talk to some of our people. Man, we'd love to talk to you about those things. 
Learning to love this way comes through the Holy Spirit, his word, and living life with fellow believers. So here's a question. So what does this look like? I'm hoping Mike kind of gets into this more next week because I've left a lot of meat on the bone for him, but I could be wrong. But I do feel like I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't give you a concrete example of what this love really looks like. John, did Melanie talk to you about me talking about this? Okay. Had to make sure he knew. How many of you have in-laws? How many of you like your in-laws? You should keep your hand up if, you, you know, if your in-laws are in here, okay? I don't know if we have anybody that's in that situation, but I, we have a couple, but I don't think they're here today, right? Listen, I have in-laws. I love my in-laws. My in-laws just moved here not that long ago, uh, actually right before COVID hit, like literally the month before they moved here. So like they move here, world gets turned upside down, but thankfully we were, we were around each other and it wasn't so bad, was it, John? <laughs> But I'm not going to lie, there's some adjustment that's needed to be made, 100%. We had to learn kind of boundaries and talk about different things, and Annie and Melanie butted heads quite a bit. I tried to stay out of it, you know. Uh, but it's, it's been a, a journey, that's for sure. Some of you might not know this, Annie and I have been together for a long time. Like, I, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Some of you in here, I know you got like shoes older than me. I'm not talking about you, okay? I'm talking about like in proportion to my age, okay? We've been together for a while. Uh, I was actually trying to remember today, 18 or 19 years. We've been together for a long time. And, uh, and I don't know if you know this, but John and Melanie actually have a son. Whew. I got to be careful with this. I don't know if I can use this illustration. Uh, they have a son. It's not had. It's present tense. They have a son. His name's Jason. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through this. All right, here we go. Oh, man. Uh, you got to give me one second here. All right. Jason is an addict. I don't know how many of you have been around an addict, like a real addict. It's not a pleasant experience. And Andy and I have been together for 18 or 19 years. And there's not a, there's not a time I really remember him outside of this. I can't do this, man. All right. It has been one of the most difficult things to watch someone walk through. Oh, man. But, But John and Melanie have sacrificed and they've pursued the welfare of Jason to the best of their ability. They've lost money. They've been lied to. They've been called some terrible names. Some of the worst things you can think of. But yet they love. They have watched relapse after relapse, but yet they love. And the flack hasn't always come from him. It's come from other family members as well. At one point, they had to remove Jason from their home because they felt like they were just enabling him to, in, in, in his behavior. And so they had to remove him from the home, and family members couldn't understand why in the world 
would you remove this kid from your home? They couldn't understand that sometimes the most loving thing to do is the hardest thing and not the nicest thing to do. But yet they loved him anyways. They have sought counseling. They have prayed fervently. And the end doesn't seem to be in sight. But yet they love. Their, their walk with Jason has been a testimony to what this love looks like. Because one of the hardest truths about this type of love, the love that God has for you and that God has for me, is that God has that same love for Jason. Which means we should have that same kind of love for Jason. The people that we think are unworthy or ungodly, or do not deserve our love are the people we should be reaching out to the most. They're the people we should be loving the hardest. If there is no sacrifice, then is it love? According to this definition, it's not. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Are not the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only people, your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. But be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And he has reclined at the table in his house with many tax collectors. He's talking about Jesus. And they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, he said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I come, for, I come not for the righteous, but for sinners. You know who the sinners are, right? It's you and me. That we're not bound by that anymore because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And I can think of no better way to get into communion, which I don't have, than to, um, than to celebrate communion uh, Someone's going to bring me one real quick. <laughs> Here we go. I can think of no better way to celebrate this than to practice communion together. Because as I've stated explicitly over and over again, the reason for our love for the unworthy is because of God's love for us. The reason that we pursue this type of love is because he first loved us, not the other way around. So if you have your bread, open it up. This represents his body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of him. The cup represents his blood, which was poured out for us. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you today. I thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to love and serve you. I thank you so much for this love that, you, uh, that you've expressed so deeply for us.
And Lord, I thank you that you give us a definition that is beyond uh, anything that we can ask or imagine. And Lord, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would fill this place, that it would fill these men and women, that it would fill these children, Lord, in a way that this love would be made manifest in them. Lord, most of all, we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.